Well, good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. Glad you're with us, whether you're joining us online or in person today. This is our third Sunday of Advent, and we're continuing on in our preaching series, Light at the End. Tim and I's three daughters were all born when we were living in London, in uh, the UK, and we moved back to Toronto when Emma was four, uh, Kate was two, and Charlie was just a few weeks old. It was totally nutty. And to top it all off, we had just purchased our first house a month or so before, and we bought the house sight unseen, having only seen uh, photos on the internet. And I'll never forget uh, the first time that we saw the house in person. We were jet-lagged, Emma and Kate were running around, I was still nursing six-week-old Charlotte, and the house did not look like the photographs. We discovered asbestos in the basement, and I burst into tears when I saw the grungy bathroom. We purchased a crack den. I remember wailing at Tim. And in that moment for me, the house needed to be completely torn down or renovated within an inch of its life. There was no fixing it. We needed a new house, as far as I was concerned. Needless to say, we lived in that house for a decade. It was wonderful. Uh, John the Baptist knew all about the need for renovation. Verse 3. John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I can't undo my parenting mistakes. Uh, Things done and left undone at the office. You can't recycle the plastic you've already thrown back. Uh, uh, Take back the career-limiting embarrassment on Zoom. Or make full reparations with our indigenous siblings. Why am I not able to live the life deep down that I want to live uh, with all my noble intentions? On the third Sunday of Advent, John the Baptist announces that there is a way to be renovated. It's going to be expensive and take longer than you think, like most renos. But this reno will open up to us the lives we really want to live, marked by contentment and hope. So I'd encourage you to have that passage from Luke open in front of you, either on your phone, it's uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, or it's on page 60 of the Pew Bible, right in front of you at the back uh, of the Bible, page 60. So some context. If Luke's gospel were a Star Wars movie, let's picture the opening credits together. A long time ago, in a country far, far away, It's a period of great unrest and deep evil. Degenerate Emperor Tiberius is on the throne. Pontius Pilate has defiled the temple in Jerusalem. Annas and Caiaphas are corrupt high priests. The rebel forces are desperate and gathering together. A long pan of the desert east of Jerusalem with nothing but rock and silence. And as the camera scans the hills, you begin to pick out on the horizon a strange-looking man standing knee-deep in the Jordan River with what looked like clumps of shivering wet people gathered around him. He's dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, the exact same outfit that the prophet Elijah wore 800 years before him. And for some reason, this strange man is magnetic. People were flocking to hear him. Prepare the way of the Lord, he bellows out. Make straight his paths. And Luke, the historian, has spent time in our passage carefully detailing the political and economic woes of the time. 
Tiberius Caesar was being worshipped as a god, and while generally a decent emperor, he was rumored to abuse young boys. Pontius Pilate, the local Roman governor, had deeply offended his Jewish subjects by sending a Roman troops into the temple, and Herod, the neighboring king of Galilee, was hated for his high taxation, and John the Baptist had criticized him for marrying his brother's wife. There was only ever supposed to be one high priest in the temple, so the fact that there were two, Annas and Caiaphas, tells us that something was rotten in the state of Denmark. All these historical details are simply to indicate that the political and religious condition of Israel was so corrupt that surely, surely it was time for the long-awaited Messiah to be revealed. The Jewish people have been waiting so long for deliverance from political oppression and now even from corruption in their own religious system. And along comes John, preaching to anyone who cared to listen. Get ready, says John. Prepare the way of the Lord because your rescue is at hand. Someone is coming. Someone so utterly beautiful and wonderful that just sitting around talking about it is not good enough. Get ready. Straighten the path so that when he comes, he can walk right in. Which brings us back to where we started. How many costly and lengthy process of renovation be good news for us today. Whether you're spiritually searching this morning or you've already decided to follow Jesus Christ. Well, I think we need to confront what is, for at least me, the hardest line in the whole passage, verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And notice that John said this to the crowd who had come out to be baptized by him. He didn't say this to the religious leaders, the leaders of the corrupt temple institution in Jerusalem that I mentioned, the leaders who were colluding with the occupying Romans and creepy King Herod. No! John was reaming out the people who in the midst of a global pandemic had made the effort to register online for church and come this morning. Those who'd resisted the lure of Netflix to tune in for online worship. Good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's. You brood of vipers. Now John the Baptist clearly does not dress or speak acceptably for polite company. But this isn't exaggeration on his part. Why? Because he knows the scriptures. In Genesis, we read about how it was a viper who got us all into trouble in the first place. That ancient serpent representing the evil one. What did that ancient serpent whisper in humanity's ear? Did the viper say, disobey God? No. The viper said, you can't trust God. You can't trust God to have your best interests at heart. And deep in my heart and in yours is the lie of that viper. The lie of that ancient serpent that God is not to be relied upon. The problem with our house, the asbestos in our basement, is not what we're doing or not doing on any given day. The problem is why we're doing it. Martin Luther that great uh, 16th century church reformer, the church needs continual renovation. 
Martin Luther figured out our problem. What's the first of the Ten Commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Honor God. Don't put your ultimate trust in anything other than God. Don't go looking for approval and hope from your career or your kids, your potential spouse, or your friends. Luther said that the reason the first commandment is the first commandment is because you only break the other nine when you've broken the first. When trusting God above all else is no longer at the center of your life. And when that happens, all the other nine commandments in some combination will get broken or at least fantasized about being broken. And you won't be able to live that life that deep down you know you want to live. You only ever lie, for example, because in that moment, something has become more important to you than God, right? Probably your reputation, that people think well of you. That's usually why we lie. Um, what's going on here? Asbestos in the basement. That's what's going on. Our roots are rotten. Verse 9. Even now, bellows John, even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. So what to do? Well, notice in verse 16, John tells the, the curious crowds that he's preparing the way for the Messiah who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And apparently this is good news. And while we, we don't have time this morning to fully unpack that verse, it's at least clear that the Holy Spirit has an important part to play in us being able to live the lives we deeply want to. The Holy Spirit is the living and active presence of God. And part of what happens when you decide to follow Jesus Christ is that the Spirit of Jesus takes up residence in your life and begins to slowly transform you, your intellect, your will, your priorities. Picture yourself as a house. A house where the contractor you have hired is God Almighty. At first, you understand most of the decisions the contractor's making. Up comes the asbestos, the walls are insulated. You knew all these things had to be done. It's been in the back of your mind for a while. But soon, soon, God starts working in the house in a way that is getting quite painful. Now God seems to want to rewire the whole place. The simple explanation is that God is building quite a different house than the one you had in mind. You thought maybe let's fix up the basement, add on a nice deck. But no, God is putting on a whole new extension, building a garden with a swimming pool for all the neighborhood kids. You thought you were being renovated into a tidy little semi? No, God's building a mansion. And it's a mansion that he's going to come and live in. The renovating work of the Holy Spirit is to call us to repentance, to turn away from all those other things that we put in the center of our lives, the place where God Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, deserves to be alone. And it's easy to think that the way you become a Christian is to start doing some good things. John, what should we do? Asked the anxious crowd in verse 10. Give generously to the poor. Don't rip people off. It's kind of obvious. We know this stuff. 
We deeply want to be that kind of person, and we all know, we know that there's room for each of us to grow in these areas, wherever you are in your spiritual journey. But doing good things a Christian does not make, because most of us, frankly, don't do a lot of them. So it would be super stressful if that was the price of admission to the Christian family. And even if you had a good stretch, you'd eventually hit a rough patch. Because before verse 10 is verse 8. John the Baptist said to the crowds, Listen, you bunch of vipers. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. Repentance is not about doing good deeds. Repentance is about opening ourselves up to the renovation of our hearts by the Holy Spirit, of the asbestos being taken out of the basement. Repent of the lie of the viper, says John, of not ultimately trusting God, of trusting in our children to give us purpose or our retirements. Repent, says John. And he knew that sometimes the person of faith can be relying on their ethical choices or their family history in a church. We have Abraham as our ancestor. The fruits of repentance are the good deeds. And as we are renovated by the Holy Spirit, our house is going to be decorated with generosity where there used to be selfishness, decorated with honesty where there used to be dishonesty. And if you think you have repented, allowed the Holy Spirit, the presence of the living God, to start working in your life, but the behavior change is not happening, you haven't repented. Verse 9. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. My message, says John, the renovating work of the Holy Spirit is an axe laid to the root of the lie of the viper. This renovation is going to be expensive. But Jesus footed the bill. He paid off the contractor with his death on the cross. And it's going to take way longer than you think. Thankfully, it's going to take your whole life. And as the Holy Spirit shapes and fashions you and me, closer and closer into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of person we all deeply want to be. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, was asked by the British magazine The Spectator a few years ago to write a letter to his 14-year-old self. This is what he wrote. Dear Justin, you're rarely good at anything, a fact you know well and worry about. But don't worry, it does not measure who you are. Keep on dreaming of great things, but learn to live in the present so that you take steps to accomplish them. Above all, more important than anything, don't wait until you're older to find out about Jesus Christ and his love for you. He's not just a name at school, but a person you can know. Christmas is not a fairy story but the compelling opening of the greatest drama in history with you as one of millions of players. Life will often be tough, but you'll find more love and greatness than you can imagine now. With my love to you, Justin. 
there is light at the end. In these last days of Advent, the renovation of repentance is the first step on that pathway to all the gifts that Christmas promises to give us, that we talk about, hope, peace, joy. And during the confession that Karen will lead in a few minutes, I invite you to open yourself up, either for the first time or maybe the 50th, to the renovating work of the Holy Spirit. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. And all people shall see the salvation of our God. Amen.